This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Elizabeth McCracken, author of the short story collection, The Souvenir Museum. Objectively, like even as I describe it, I think, oh my God, that sounds terrible. You bite your children? But I then understood this sort of like looking at children and going, oh, you're just so lovely. I want to get closer to you, which is also horrifying at the same time, like that border between love and almost erasure. I am, I'm interested in. We'll be back with Elizabeth McCracken in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents the continuation of close to eight years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions and craft, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and a monthly newsletter. In addition, there are surprise thank you gifts that I offer when you enroll as a patron and spontaneous mailings like a bookmark all my patrons received this January embedded with flower seeds. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me in the production of this show. So why not make today the day to show your support? Why wait? Beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Elizabeth McCracken, author of seven books, which include fiction, nonfiction, and short stories. Her story collection, Thunderstruck, and other stories won the 2015 Story Prize. Her novels include Here's Your Hat, What's Your Hurry, The Giant's House, and Niagara Falls all over again. McCracken is the James A. Michener Chair in Creative Writing at the University of Texas at Austin. Her new short story collection, The Souvenir Museum, contains 12 stories about travel, arguments, bodies of water, parenthood, childhood, and marriage. Five of the stories concern the same characters, Sadie and Jack, who are in various stages of their relationship. Other stories feature two fathers confronting their personal fears, a mother pining for her children, a recent widower on a search for puffins in Scotland, and ventriloquism. We began the discussion with me asking Elizabeth McCracken about a line she wrote in a story that was incredibly astute about human behavior. 
It's in a story of yours called Proof, and you're talking about a man who is older and uh, his wife has, has died, and he was one of many children, and his brothers had died before he did. And it says his brothers had started to die almost the moment Lewis had left the house. He had turned out to be a load-bearing wall, and you're talking about how he is for his family. So that metaphor is so astute about human behavior, and that's an example. And you can talk about that metaphor and or how you see human behavior. The funny thing is, is that one of the things I hear when I hear that metaphor, it appears, there's another story it appears in too, is that at some point when I was writing these stories, I was going to the gym and watching a lot of property shows. I'm like, yeah, the load-bearing wall. I mean, I am, I'm certainly interested in how people fit together in the world. I just think I have no good advice about what to do. I think I could describe anybody's family to them, but I don't think I could, you know, it, it wouldn't necessarily be in a helpful way to the people. I would get very interested in describing how somebody fit into their family. Were you a very observant child? I don't think I was, to tell you the truth. I think um, although I did, I loved hearing stories from my family, um, especially the older members of my family. But I think I was a not unusually self-obsessed child, but I, 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 I often say that in, in almost all of my memories of childhood, I'm by myself. I don't think that that's an accurate representation of my childhood, but the things that I remember are sitting around kind of thinking about things or harboring grudges, the grudges I held when I was a small child. So tell me about some of the obsessions that you were really thinking about when you started writing the Souvenir Museum. Pretty much, I think. These days, when I'm at home, I work on novels. And when I travel, which I have not done in a very long time, like the rest of the world, I think about short stories. I And so... A lot of the stories in the collection came about because I was with my ball and chain, Edward Carey, who's who's a writer, and our kids, and we were traveling somewhere, and I myself was out of context. And so I was thinking the sorts of thoughts I don't think at home. And there's a story about um, a woman who is on a ferry from the Hook of Holland back to England. That is a journey that we took. Um, there's a museum uh, of souvenirs in Denmark. I have been in that. That's the, I don't think the characters are really based on real people, but that is an accurate representation of a very weird museum that I was in. And so at some point I realized that a bunch of the, the stories were about travel and about being out of context. And I decided that instead of thinking, oh God, I'm writing the same story over and over again, I would try to wrestle it into some kind of theme. Do you write when you're traveling or do you sort of take notes and then write when you get home? I take notes. I take a lot of internal notes, don't necessarily. I mean, I'll jot down a line here or there and then I will turn it over in my mind and write the first draft, generally speaking, pretty quickly. So you were saying that you didn't want to write the same story over and over again. So then you start talking about theme. How do you incorporate that? The, the more I think about it, the more there's remarkably little that I do on purpose when I write. It seems very sort of accidental and and based on 
things that are happening at the back of my brain. But sometimes I can make a decision in the front of my brain um, to try to think generally about about things, and I will. So I decided that um, that a lot of the stories would be about travel, and there are. I think five stories. I should really take a look at this book because I haven't thought about it in <laughs> a little while. Um, I think there are five stories that are about the same two characters. And knowing that I wanted to write about them traveling um, made it easier to 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 write those stories. That I was that they're more the combination of being at home and abroad, those characters and the stories. Because it's my it's my great fear that I'm just going to write the same story or the same novel over and over and over again. I worry that I'm either going to plagiarize myself or plagiarize somebody else. It's hard to answer that question be, because so much of what I do feels fairly accidental. Well, I wonder too if part of it is ineffable. Yeah, I mean, I think it I think it is, or intuitive, or I mean, this is something I I I, I teach. Um, graduate students, and I spent a lot of time saying, you know, the thing is, is that there are not specific rules on how to compose fiction. You just have to, you have to work on your intuition. Um, and the good news is, is that you can build your intuition. Nobody is born knowing how to write a short story. And the way you do that is by putting as m- as much good work into your brain so that it works its way through and, and comes out through your writing like reading a lot. Yes, yes. I noticed that a theme uh, throughout the book, or maybe it's a trope more than a theme, is you have a lot of characters that are half Jewish, half Scottish, or or characters who are blending a Jew and a British person. I don't think that's too far from your life. Ned is not too far away from my life. And speaking of... Uh, of um trying to not write the same thing. I'm like, okay, like now I have to knock that off. Um, my mother was Jewish and I feel, I feel sort of, I don't even want to say culturally Jewish. I feel Jewish. Um, though my mother was not practicing when I was growing up and I have no religious practice at all. Um, and I'm married to an Englishman. And your dad was Scottish. My father was an amalgamation of waspy, branches of the family tree. He was more German than anything else, but also English, Irish, Scottish. Did you learn anything when you write these characters that have some of these representations of of your pieces of your life? Does it make you look at your life differently when you go back? I don't I don't think so. But I think, I mean, one of the things when I got married that interested me is I wondered, oh, okay, I'm I'm marrying somebody who's Anglican. He also doesn't have a religious practice, what, but was, was brought up Anglican. And I wondered whether I was going to feel less Jewish because of that. But in fact, I feel more Jewish because of that. I'm more, sort of more interested in the divisions. And we had a, an entertaining wedding in which I yielded all decisions to other people because I didn't care about it. And my mother turned out to care very deeply about having a rabbi at the wedding in the Anglican church in which we got married. And we got married in a church only because it was at the foot of my parents-in-law house. And because in 
England, you can't just get married anywhere. Like you have to get married in specific places where it's legal to get married. Um, and it made sense to get married at the foot of, we couldn't have gotten married in their backyard. We could get married in the foot of the church. And my, my mother said, I want a rabbi there. And I'm like, sure, whatever. I have, I really have no strong opinions about this ceremony whatsoever. But because of that, I think I, I am always thinking about those differences. It was very entertaining. And at one point, one of the church wardens said, as it happens, the eccentric rector was like absolutely fine with having a rabbi in the church. And the one of the church wardens said, right, I don't understand. When do we all yell Maisel Tove? And I feel like that I, that has actually not appeared in a short story because I'm not sure that you could represent it correctly in a short story. But that sort of disjunction, I think, is what I'm interested in in fiction. You had mentioned these stories that run through the collection between these two characters that keep reappearing. They they are named Sadie and Jack, and she is half Jewish. Her mother is Jewish, and she is American. And Jack, whose original name was Lenny, which has some a little bit of mystery around that in the beginning, is British. And you see them in a few different situations. So that you meet them and you scatter the time. So you don't meet them in the beginning of their relationship. You meet them when the relationship is new and she's going over to Britain. She actually goes to Ireland to a wedding for his family. We can talk about some of the stories, but let's talk a little bit about Sadie and Jack and who, like what you were exploring in their characters. So they're the decisions in a book that are based on art. And then the, you know, the high-minded, yes, I just want to write the best possible story. The things that are ineffable. Uh, With those stories, the other thing that happened was I had a deadline for a collection and I was thinking quite stupidly, well, you know, I've got, I think I've got seven stories. My stories are pretty long. Um, This should not be a problem. And I pulled those stories together and they amounted to 88 pages, which is not most of a short story collection. And so I knew I had to write stories. So the, I knew I had to write stories fairly quickly, more quickly than I generally do. And I thought, well, if I make them connected, then I'll be able to write better stories quickly than if I try to write just five stories or, you know, fill up the rest of the collection. So that was that was part of the decision. But I was interested. What I like when I read collections of stories that are, are connected is that that sort of thrilling feeling that you get Thrilling is maybe the wrong word, but the feeling you get when you're looking at a photo album, uh, a family of family photos, and you think, oh, how did this person get to here? Like, here is this person as a young man. Here he is as an old man. You can tell that something has happened to him. Um, But what is it? And I feel like a novel maybe tries to explain that. And connected short stories just show the two photos next to each other. So the reader sort of gets the pleasure of going, what what did happen? I, I remember him and I remember her when they were younger. 
And now they're like this. And I know them well enough, actually, now to have some notion of what happened to them. Well, I think, too, that it maybe allows more room for the reader. It's kind of like white space where they can fill in, where in the novel, maybe it's like a less muscular job on their characters. Maybe you're you're muscling other things in your brain. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And that's I I love and think about all the time the notion of the work that you give a reader to do and how pleasurable it is for readers to do big work like that. That it's it's that I think is thrilling for for readers. I know I feel that way when when um when a writer really trusts me to do some of that work. I, I remembered the the fifth story I wasn't thinking about because it really focuses on Jack when he's young and that's when he is Lenny. It's called A Splinter. So let's start with that one. So when he's 16, he his parents are British, but he grows up in Ithaca. I think they had like a little... I don't know, maybe it was a lapse of reasoning for a while where they came to America because they realized that was not the life for them. And he grew up in Ithaca and he had this kind of British sensibility, but also kind of being lost in the world, I felt a little bit from maybe having these British parents, but living in this town and being lost. And he ends up working on the Queen Elizabeth too, but ends up basically meeting up with this woman named Lottie who's a ventriloquist and kind of just inserts himself into her life to learn about ventriloquism. Yes. What was, <laughs> yeah, what was the, where did that come from and the, the interest in ventriloquism and how could ventriloquism or how did you want it to serve as kind of to meet more of who Lenny is and bring him out? So I am one of those people who has always loved ventriloquism. And I have a, a great weakness in my life, but also in my fiction for weird show business. But also, um, I sometimes write a piece for the New York Times Magazine end of year issue called uh, The Lives They Led. And, the, you know, you write just a little essay about somebody who's died in the past year. And I wrote a piece about Jimmy Nelson, who was um, a very famous U.S. ventriloquist. Um, he did, I don't know if you remember those Nestle quick ads. They were going on. They started in the 50s and went through the 80s, I think. And there was a puppet called, a dog pu puppet called Farfel, who I was fascinated by because in the ads, you could hear his jaw click as he was singing N-E-S-T-L-E-S, -E Nestle's makes the very best chocolate. So I was writing about him and I was just thinking, I might've been thinking I've never written about a ventriloquist before, but that's a lie because there is a ventriloquist in my second novel. I love them because they're uncanny. I love ventriloquists and I watched a ton of YouTube videos uh, about ventriloquists, um, English ventriloquists and American ventriloquists. And I was interested in how different the two of them were and their similarities. And, you know, there's something, there's something compelling about watching somebody who is pretending that something is alive and intent on convincing you that, that that something is alive as well. And it's probably kind of corny to say, and that's like fiction. I do the same thing. I'm not sure that's that's my my interest in ventriloquism, but I I, I really love being tricked and I love stage magic and I love ventriloquism. 
I love inherent in that too is also the fact that someone else is kind of speaking for you. And so you can give them sort of an animus that you maybe aren't brave enough to have or find words that you can have. And maybe this ventriloquism was also, well, it was part of his sexual awakening with this older woman, but that it, it was like a vehicle for him to find himself. That's totally not alive. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And I think there's, there's a reason why um, ventriloquial figures um, tend to be real jerks. Those, you know, the ventriloquist um, can be a very nice person. Jimmy Nelson, for instance, was his persona was incredibly lovely. His dummy was was a jerk, Danny O'Day. There's an English um, ventriloquist, and I'm blanking on his name, who almost never spoke. And his dummy just berated him, just yelled in the the ventriloquist's face the entire time. I feel like it's a dying art. Well, well, Mitzi. So, (laughs) yes and no. In that, I only have this. I only know this because I wrote the the piece on Jimmy Nelson a very high percentage of the winners of America's Got Talent are ventriloquists, like three of the the over 17 years or something like that. Um, And there are, I mean, probably not not now in this odd historical time, but there are ventriloquists with giant Las Vegas shows. It's interesting that, that there's still an appetite for it, for something that actually, I guess, could be duplicated with um, technology, but then there wouldn't be anything interesting about it. Have you tried it? Yes, I am incredibly bad at it. <laughs> My brother actually sent me a um, a Danny O'Day doll for Christmas, a, a figure. And uh, I've thought about trying to practice it a, a little bit more, but for a little while, I was really torturing my family by going around, going, trying to say things. The thing you're supposed to practice, which is in that story, is bottle of beer, because B is the hardest consonant to make. And in fact, from I listened to Jimmy Nelson's uh, ventriloquism course that he had, and uh, he's the one who says it's in that story. And I still, I still don't even know what this means, says... You say G, but you think B. And I keep trying that. And I'm like, it doesn't, I, I'm, I haven't gotten to that exalted uh, part of the ventriloquist's path in which I understand what that means. And then I'm suddenly saying bottle of beer without moving my lips. I tried it too. I couldn't do it. Yeah. So two sad clowns is how they meet. So they're young, they're in Boston, they meet in a bar and They are taking a drunk man home and sort of through caregiving for this guy, they they already had that initial attraction, but they sort of just bonded and that was it. There wasn't like any drama, really. I mean, obviously, you don't see him again. I think in order it would be you wouldn't see him again until they went to the wedding, but they just 
both had this quirky sensibility and, and Lenny was continuing with the sort of vein of ventriloquism and Sadie was probably more down to earth and realistic, but also really looking for love. But there, there wasn't a lot of drama between them. No, I think they, they meet and they fit. But then you realize sometimes that that doesn't mean there aren't problems. I mean, part of it is, is that I think if you wrote fictional characters who had, who were only happy um, unceasingly, it would be incredibly boring fiction. Um, and maybe even, I may feel that way even more strongly in short stories than I do in novels, that a, you know, a short story has to have a, a problem and friction in it for it to be interesting. And I, and I, I, I do have to say my, my, my biggest goal as a fiction writer probably is to be interesting. I'm terrified of being boring. Well, you start that story off with Punch and Judy, which is, it's so evocative. I mean, first of all, you're thinking about Punch and Judy and you say even Punch and Judy were in love once. And I began thinking about like Punch and Judy marionette shows or puppet shows I had seen in, as a kid. And then I started thinking how messed up that was that you're seeing these puppets like abuse each other. And it was a curious place to start for these these two. I wonder if there's more um, about crafting that that you want to say. Yeah, that was um, you. You asked me to to read at some point from something that I sort of labored over, and that that opening of that story is is what I was thinking of, and that's partially because, in fact, I had that line in my head as the first line of a story for a long time before I knew what I was going to do with it. And I started a couple of stories that have nothing to do with these stories with that line and it, they weren't right. But I was so struck by the notion, you know, you're, you're totally right. Like Punch and Judy shows are basically dramatized marital fury and abuse. These two puppets hitting each other and children love them. They laugh and laugh. But I love the idea of the early days of Punch and Judy and how they how they got to be this way. Um, and then once I was thinking about writing um, these characters, I sort of had the image of somebody in Boston stepping out of a giant puppet from a from a parade, which is what Jack does, how he and Sadie meet each other. And then it sort of, everything sort of came from there. So I actually had the line before I knew that he was somebody who had an interest in puppets at all. And I wrote that story. And then I thought, yes, I think he worked as a ventriloquist when he was younger. It's sort of like the gateway to puppetry. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, something I noticed throughout many of your stories, and I do want to talk about one literally that was probably one of my favorites, although there are so many that I loved, but there was a lot of characters that were still feeling the presence of people in their lives who have died. Yeah, I mean, I think that is probably one of my abiding interests both because of the people in my life who have died. And this is the first book I wrote. I, my, my mother died in 2018. So some of the stuff I had written before my mother died, um, but a lot of it I write, 
wrote afterwards. My father died in 2013. But I also, there are a lot of people who I miss. But I also remember talking to my my family members who were the generation before my parents, my grandmother, I had a first cousin twice removed who I was very close to. Um, and they both lived to, to their 90s and they still missed people who had died decades and decades before. Um, and I think that's that's how it how it works. And, and I, I think I always sort of felt like, oh, I miss those people too. I miss I miss the husbands who died in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, because my my relatives spoke so vividly about them. The other thing I noticed that came up in a few of these stories was radio. <laughs> yes. What's that about? That's so funny. I hadn't realized there's, there's there's at least two stories that in which radio looms large. I love radio, and I'm, you know I'm 54. I had a very intense relationship to the radio when I was little, you know, I listened to it all the time. And it used to be when I was a young writer, I would, so this is when I was living in Provincetown in 1990. Um, and this was before home internet. Um, didn't have a television set, everything shut down. And I would put on Larry King's overnight radio show when Larry King was only on the radio, just so there would be voices to keep me company while I was writing, not loud enough for me to be able to hear it, but just sort of a little, a little burble of talking. I'm not sure if I've even sort of analyzed all of the ways in which um, I still am a serious radio listener and, and how much it shaped my childhood and, um, and young adulthood, particularly, that I was just always listening to. You know, I used to listen to conservative talk radio so that I could feel righteously furious sometimes. Though I preferred listening to, you know, to, to gentler voices. Listen to Dr. Demento. I was obsessed with Dr. Demento when I was in high school and would stay up every night to listen to him once a week. Yeah, there's definitely an energy of n nostalgic radio. It's not like this American life radio. It's more like advice radio and like late night comfort radio, even if it's weird radio, is the, the energy the radio emits. Yes. Yeah. I like that that sense that, I mean, maybe it's it's just another form of ventriloquism, the way that disembodied voices come 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 into your ear. But yeah. We, we listened to a lot of classic radio when I was a kid, too, on on cassette tapes, um, like the, the Jack Benny show and Burns and Allen and The Shadow. The other thing I noticed, and we're going to talk about some of the stories, was you had a lot of, not a lot, but there were several women in really comfy rooms. Like there was a woman in a really comfortable hotel room. There was a woman on a very comfortable boat. And... I just wanted to like snuggle in with them, but I, I don't know if that just occurs to you at all, that that is a, something that happened more than once or if I just noticed that. I think you noticed it. I'm laughing because it is, it's me going, I really like a hotel room and I like a really good fairy room. Um, and I realized I have, uh, 
I think something I'm working on now has a woman going into a hotel room that she's just really pleased with. Part of it is that uh, I always want my characters to be embodied, to to obey gravity and the rules of of, uh, of physics on the face of the earth. So I think a lot about rooms when they walk into them. I want them to I want them to to be fully fully physically present. Yeah, you describe the rooms very deeply in your fiction. I noticed that. But I also wonder, like, if you were a, a therapist or just an English teacher looking at your canon in 100 years, if they would say, well, Elizabeth was very interested in women going back into the womb and comfortable places where they could explore who they were. Like, who knows? I, I You know, I honestly think it's, you know, I just like hotel rooms so much. That's that is one of the things that I miss at our present moment. So I have not been in a, I can't even remember the last time I was in a hotel room. Um, and I just love, and now maybe a therapist would say, oh, the reason you love hotel rooms is because of this. But I really love hotel rooms. I, I love that sense of being by myself in public. Well, I think it's also like a liminal space where you can leave everything behind and like physically, like the clutter of your life isn't there. And, and, and so you can exist like almost outside of time. I think that's right. Nobody is watching you and going, why are you just lying there? That's terrible. Or, you know, you don't need to have food brought to your room and eat it in bed. That's disgusting. Um, and I don't eat in bed at home, but there's just nothing better than room service. Again, I was mentioning earlier one of my favorite song, um, stories in here is called Bird Song from Radio. It's very, it's very luscious with its imagery. It's incredibly sad. It's about a woman, and if I describe this incorrectly, please let me know, but it's about a woman named Lenora who, who loves her children so much. It's like she, she's almost like obsessed with them. She wants to eat them in, in a way that she wants to take care of them, but it was too, it was too much for, for the kids. And so they basically went to their dad and said, this is too much. And so, and there was also like mental illness um, insinuations there as well. So they they move out and the father takes the kids away. And then the greatest fear she has happens where the nanny is driving the kids and has an accident and then they all die. And she ends up, I mean, she's alone before because the kids have gone away, but then she's alone in, in, a, in like a deep, real sense. And she keeps eating challah because it reminds her a little bit of that softness of her kids. I just wanted, was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the story. And if I mischaracterized anything wrong, please let yeah. me know. No, that's, I think that's, that's about right. It, it came about because um, Kate Bernheimer, who is a wonderful writer and um, she's an editor uh, as well, was putting together an anthology called XO Orpheus, which were rewrites, versions of myths. She had done one that was fairy tales, and then the 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 second one was was myths. And so the myth I chose chose was Lamia, who is a woman whose children die, and she turns into a sort of a multi-animal, mythical an animal. Um, 
and she also eats her children in some versions of the of the myth. And I was I've always been somewhat fascinated by those myths about parents eating children. Saturn just um, eating his children. The the Grimm brothers fairy tale the the juniper tree because it's horrifying. I also before I had children was horrified with hearing people say, oh, I'm going to eat you up. Oh, you just don't look at that tuchus. Don't you want to bite it? And uh, I thought, God, that's, so, that's awful. And then I had children and I bit them all the time. I mean, you know, nicely, not like this mother, um, but like giving a little giving a little nibble um, or threatening to, to eat them up and they would they would laugh. And I don't think it was terrified laughter. But there's something objectively, like even as I describe it, I think, oh my God, that sounds terrible. You bite your children. But I then understood this sort of like, you know, looking at looking at children and going, oh, you're just so lovely. I want to get closer to you, which is also horrifying at the same time, like that that border between love and almost erasure. I yeah, I'm interested in. And then I looked at some hala in a uh case and thought yeah that there's something about the brownness of it that looks quite baby-like I think too there's something about the idea of consumption that I mean this maybe gets a little Buddhist or whatever but it's like you you have you have these children and you're outside of your they're outside of you and you can't maybe you can't live with not being attached to them and somehow eating them and consuming them is a way to just keep them forever yeah, isn't it awful? But and I think it's completely true that there's that sense of you know you want your children to grow up and be absolutely independent from you physically, but it, there's something that's also painful about it. Another story that was really interesting was Robinson Crusoe at the water park, and this was about a couple named Bruno and Ernest. They're a gay couple, very far apart in age. Bruno's much older and had once been married to a woman and then found Ernest. And they ended up adopting uh, a baby. And they're going to kind of a water park in Galveston, um, an indoor water park, which I'd never really heard about such a thing. I'm assuming that maybe it does really exist. Um, And it's about... Bruno taking Cody, their young kid, off while Ernest is at the bar and how a moment of danger sort of shifts everything for him and how he sees things. Uh, Bruno was not interested necessarily in being married. He knew they were partnered and that wasn't it. But how maybe like tragedy or near tragedy makes things come into focus and becomes a moment that changes us. So this is another commission um, for an anthology edited by Tracy Chevalier called Reader, I Married Him, which is stories inspired by Jane Eyre. Though I was already working on the story before I got the request, and I was like, yeah, I, could, I, can, I can push the Jane Eyre-ness that is already in the story a bit. Um, Schlitterbahn is a real place. It's actually a chain of water parks, but the one in Galveston, which I have been to several times with my kids because we've gone to Galveston either at Thanksgiving or Christmas time to look at the ocean and 
half the park is shut up against the cold and it is a very strange place. Why it's German themed, I don't know. Maybe the family that founded it is German, but there actually is a ride called Faust und Furious. Um, and uh, they're, uh, they actually, they do have a dachshund mascot. It's one of those things where, like, I'm generally a very realistic rider. I just tend to to like details from the the peculiar parts of real life. I, I used to write stories that took place over a lot, large period of time, always. They're sort of shrunk down versions of novels. That's a story that takes place over a very defined period of time, like a couple of hours um, in an afternoon. Was interested in, in of, of how that makes small moments dramatic. It, like a lot of the stories in the collection is really about marriage, but I, I think that aspect came in more when I was thinking of it as a version of Jane Eyre with the, the first spouse who haunts the story and the, then the, the, younger, the younger love object spouse. I think part of it was um, what comes up when you have kids that Bruno didn't really want kids, but when he deferred so much of his preferences to Ernest because he was haunted or because he was older and because maybe he realized just having Ernest was worth maybe any other sacrifice he had to make and that these sacrifices he made it made maybe became something he actually cared about, but he didn't realize like having, having a child and he worried like on, on page 146. So they're taking him and they are kind of worried. Like obviously they don't want him to drown and there's like a river with a current and there's different things there. And he, you write the rule of the household was to encourage, but Bruno wanted to say, no, sweetheart, you're an awful swimmer. You suck. One of the things he hadn't realized before having a child, how many ways there were to die of self-confidence. That was another line where I thought it was very astute to behavior that it's not really the things that your kids are afraid of that could kill them, but the things that they think they're amazing at. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of my kids was, I can't even remember which one it was now, but was go- talking about what a great swimmer they were. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I can't. I cannot build your up your uh, your ego on this subject. You are bad. <laughs> Do not think that you are good. Drowning is one of my, I don't think I'm frightened of drowning, but I'm frightened of other people drowning. And I feel like I have felt that way all my life, reading strange stories in Reader's Digest about freak drownings. Yeah, so that is absolutely in there. And when, you know, you have really small children you're reading all the time about you can drown in three inches of what baby can drown in three inches of water. And so you have that line running through your head, or at least I did for much of my kids, early childhoods, just how little water. I mean, it's amazing that I allow my children to bathe by themselves. Now, my last book of short stories was largely about parental fears. And it's not that, um, that I've given up on those at, you know, my, we lived in a bungalow for a few years. We still live in a bungalow, but it's a converted one that has an upper story. And when we moved to a house with stairs, I thought, this is madness to let your children climb, go up and down stairs. This is 
who invented that? And because they had lived, they had grown up for much of their early childhood in the house without stairs, they were really bad at stairs. <laughs> or, you know, they were, yeah, they were just not used to them. Did you know when you started writing this that it would end where it would, where basically he realizes where er- Ernest wanted to be married and he didn't really care? And then the last line, if it's okay to say, he, he says, marry me. Yeah, I think I, di- I think I did know that. I mean, I think it's probably one of the happiest love stories I've written, um, the story of Bruno and Ernest. Yeah, and I was interested in in marriage, how you both want to preserve your own tendencies um, and your own beliefs about the world, but that doing things because they would make your partner happy is not the sacrifice that you might think it would be abstractly. Let's talk about It's Not You. This is one of the ones with that has radio and a hotel room. You also have a lot of people who are, maybe not a lot, but you have people who are heartbroken, at least in this story, <laughs> over a two and a half week relationship. So the girl, the, the woman here goes to a hotel in her, near her Midwestern town where she's living to just spend one night away. Maybe some of the things that you were talking about that you can find in a hotel room, the sort of solace and peace um, from her broken heart and at there, and she works at a radio station And she recognizes this famous kind of late night radio talk show host there. And she approaches him and goes over to him and goes up to his room and they're, they're drinking together. And where you're, you're suspecting that maybe something um, untoward will happen between these two, that that's not really where it goes. She sort of, physically is drowning in her sorrow. She takes a tub and he's basically saying like, just be happy. Just wondering if you could talk a little bit about this story. Sure. It's another drowning story. I do think, I hope it's true for other writers too, that all these little bits of like obsessions and worries I have make their way into, into my work without me even noticing it particularly. I had little pieces of it and this has not always been true for the way I've written short stories, but a lot of the short stories in here, the characters themselves are not autobiographical at all, but on a trip, something will happen and I'll go, oh, I think I can use that as a framework for a story. So we, in fact, at one point we're in um, Houston and we stayed at this insane over-the-top hotel called the Hotel Zaza. And I had a waiter, we had a waiter with braces on his teeth. But I was also really thinking about the things that happened to me, the things that happened to us, that when you're younger, feel like the worst thing in the entire world. And then decades later, you're sort of thinking, why did that upset me so much? Like, why was that the drama of that year? And that, at least for me, I can often remember facts, but I can't remember the quality of emotion. And that question I was really, I was really interested in, in that story, that um, something that you might think is the defining event of your early adulthood actually turns out to not be consequential in your life whatsoever. But also, 
and this is something I think I write about all the time, um, is like sort of the fork in the road in one's life because she so she thinks this romance is the most consequential thing. But the other thing is, is that she almost drowns in a bathtub. And that would have been the story of her life entirely because her life would have ended and it would have been the story of the person's hotel room who she almost uh, drowns in. And that, um, and that miraculously she's saved by somebody. Yeah, I feel like I'm always interested in that and those in those moments that are life-changing, it's like narratively life-changing. Especially when maybe you're focusing on the wrong thing in that moment. <laughs> yes. And, th- and that, that you can't go back and tell your 21-year-old self that that horrible breakup from your two-and-a-half-week relationship won't mean that much later because there is no way to see it a different way. Absolutely. Which I think is good. I mean, even if, yes. if, if there's a way that you look back in time and think it's inconsequential, it did have some trajectory on your life. Yeah, I think it does. You can't, you, you can't remove it. And if you feel that strongly about anything, it's, you're not actually crying over nothing. You are crying over something, even if you forget it later on. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? The passage I chose um, is from Alice Munro, who I know is a influence on a lot of people, but I was talking to one of my graduate students, um, uh, a writer named Willie Fitzgerald, who is reading a lot of Munro um, in in another class. And I was thinking of this Munro story called Friend of My Youth, which is, if it's not the first story of hers, I read it's close to it. I, I saw that it was published in January of 1990 when I was in graduate school. And I'm just going to read the opening. I used to dream about my mother. And though the details in the dream varied, the surprise in it was always the same. The dream stopped, I suppose, because it was too transparent in its hopefulness, too easy in its forgiveness. In the dream, I would be the age I really was, living the life I was really living. And I would discover that my mother was still alive. The fact is, she died when I was in my early 20s and she in her early 50s. Sometimes I would find myself in our old kitchen where my mother would be rolling out pie crust on the table or washing the dishes in the battered cream-colored dishpan with the red rim. But other times, I would run into her on the street in places where I would never have expected to see her. She might be walking through a handsome hotel lobby or lining up in an airport. She would be looking quite well, not exactly youthful, not entirely untouched by the paralyzing disease that held her in its grip for a decade or more before her death, but so much better than I remembered that I would be astonished. Oh, I just have this little tremor in my arm, she would say, and a little stiffness up the side of my face. It is a nuisance, but I get around. I recovered then, what in waking life I had lost, my mother's liveliness of face and voice before her throat, muscles stiffened, and a woeful, impersonal mask fastened itself over her features. How could I have forgotten this, I would think in the dream, the casual humor she had, not ironic but merry, the lightness and impatience and confidence. 
I would say that I was sorry I hadn't been to see her in such a long time, meaning not that I felt guilty, but that I was sorry I had kept a bugbear in my mind instead of this reality. And the strangest, kindest thing of all to me was her matter-of-fact reply. Oh, well, she said, better late than never. I was sure I'd see you someday. Do you want to talk a little bit more about why you chose that? Well, it's got that the life of the of the dead continuing in the present. And one of the things that I, I love about this story is that the mother is actually a, a minor character in the action of the story, but her presence hovers over everything. Uh, and it's a very strangely shaped story. It's very strange about time, but also it's just, it's intensely beautiful. Can you read a passage you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft and then tell us why? All right, I'm going to read just this, the opening to Two Sad Clowns. Even Punch and Judy were in love once. They knew the exact clockwise adjustment required to fit their preposterous profiles together for a kiss, her nose to the left of his nose, his chin to the left of her chin. Before the slapstick and the swazzle, the crocodile and the constable, before, above all, the baby, they'd known how to be sweet to each other. These people too, Jack and Sadie, they'd met at a long ago winter parade in Boston. Sadie had been walking home from a show at the Rat, drunk and heartbroken over nothing. 21 years old, the clamor of the smoky club still around her, a trailing cloud she imagined was visible. Her friends had terrible boyfriends one after another, but she never did. When she felt particularly maudlin, she blamed it on her father's death when she was nine, Then most of the time she thought that was neither here nor there. She liked to imagine him, the man who might love her, a performer of some kind, an actor or musician, somebody she could admire in the company of strangers. He'd have an accent and a death wish and depths of kindness. She wanted love so badly, the longing felt like organ failure, but it was the longing itself that had rendered her unlovable, the way the starving are eventually unable to digest food. At the same time, she believed she deserved love, not as much as anyone, but more. Only she would know what to do with it. Yeah, so tell us more why you chose that. Well, as I said, I, I kept trying with this image of the early years of Punch and Judy trying to do something with it. But I, I also struggled because um, this is a story in which the point of view shifts a bit and trying to both start far enough out of the heads of the characters that it made sense. But I also wanted to get to that extreme um, that extreme interiority that it gets to in her head. Um, and it took me a while to get that right, to sort of signal that this story was not going to be entirely about Sadie, but about Jack, who gets named in the, on that first page. Yeah, I, w- I wanted a point of view that could go anywhere, just about. Where do you write? I used to write mostly in my campus office, the University of Texas, where I teach. Um, but I'm very rarely there these days. Um, and I I used to be very superstitious about where I could write, and now I can write almost anywhere. Um, I'm talking to you right now from a, a rented studio space that uh, uh, Edward and I share. And I've been writing here, but I also write on the corner of the sofa. And um, as when life is busy, I try to find little little bits of time 
almost anywhere. And so time is more important than space to me these days. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Yeah, that's, there's so many of these questions that are different in the pandemic than they were. Um, I go nowhere to get away. There's nothing, there's no place to go because travel is in fact one of my favorite things. Um, but the big thing, much of this is that I get away from writing in this. I get up most mornings and swim at Barton Springs, which is this giant pool in the center of Austin that's spring-fed and cold. And there are birds. I saw a cormorant eating a fish the other day, which is quite impressive. And and so swimming, it's that that the oddness of swimming is that you're all by yourself, even when other people are around. So that yeah, that's what I've been doing lately. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Edward is one of my first readers. I, I rotate people a little bit, but I show Edward and, and um, I couldn't do without his his advice and for 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 my work. Um, I also Ann Patchett reads my work. Um, my friend Paul Sicky is one of my early readers, and my agent Henry Dunow, who's a wonderful reader. But I use I used to show people stuff as it was in progress, and now this is actually something that I I got from Edward is that he wrote an entire novel without telling anybody what it was about, and finished the draft and said that it was he would never do it any other way now, and I do that as well. I wait until I have a draft of something before I show it to people, and it's not because I'm worried what people will say. It is just sort of the deliciousness of complete privacy while I'm composing something. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, I deal with rejection badly, but quickly in that I feel it extremely keenly and bitterly and childishly. And then I forget about it. And what is your favorite word? In thinking about this, and sort of the theoretical answer, because one of my very favorite words is eponymous. Um, but it's not the word I, you can't use the word eponymous more than once in a book. And the word that I use entirely too much, the, the, the real favorite word I don't want to admit to is probably tender. Thank you so much for your time and for talking to me. I'm so appreciative. A total pleasure, Mitzi. It's so nice to see you again. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Elizabeth McCracken, author of the short story collection, The Souvenir Museum. If you liked today's show, check out my first interview with McCracken, where we discussed her short story collection, Thunderstruck and Other Stories. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it to the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, 
Interviews with Diane Seuss, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, Stephen Pressfield, and Ethan Rutherford. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.